0: Father, this is a a confronting uh, passage that we've read today, both from Genesis and this part of Galatians. We ask that you will open our hearts and our minds to understand your word, uh, and uh, more than that, we ask that we might know the uh, living power of your Holy Spirit at work in us as we hear you speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week's passage... Um, I'm going to do a bit of a recap, was really the high point of the book of Galatians. If there are any verses from the book of Galatians that we should memorise, it would be these ones. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, do you remember, thinking back a few weeks, how in the first message we saw that the opening lines of Galatians were a summary of the gospel? Galatians 1, 3 to 5. Well, these verses are also a summary of the gospel, but a bit more fleshed out. You can see how each each phrase in that sentence that Paul writes uh, is is a a key aspect of the gospel, right from the promises made at the very beginning, um, right through to... Uh, the personal truth of the gospel that's impacted our lives, where we have uh, the spirit as a guarantee, where we know freedom from sin and the law and death, and we have a hope that will never disappoint. Now, what we need to see is that the end point of the gospel that was presented in 1 verse 5, God and far, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen, Is actually the same as the end point of the gospel here in verses uh, 6 to 7. That we've been adopted as sons, and as heirs, we cry, Abba Father, through the Spirit of the Son who's been sent into our hearts. See what both of those verses have in common? It's the Father. The Father is the goal of the Gospel. It's not merely that uh, God receives the glory forever, but that God receives the glory as the Father, because he is the Father. And that's what the Gospel does. It displays the fatherhood of God most clearly and most gloriously because it comes to us in the person of the Son. Jesus has revealed the Father to us by showing his own identity as the Son. He brought glory to the Father precisely by showing us that the Father is his Father and the Father is our Father. See what Jesus said to his disciples just before going to the cross. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Philip got it right. Seeing the Father is enough. It's, it's all that a human being ultimately needs to know and see because we are created to be children of God, so knowing the Father is the only thing that's going to bring us into our true humanity. But what Philip hadn't yet seen, if I can get my page here, what he hadn't yet realised is that Jesus had already done what He's asking. He'd already made the Father known to them by making himself known to them as the Son. Jesus' whole life, his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, his prayers, and very soon his cross could be summed up by this phrase, a son crying out in the power of the Spirit, Abba Father. Father. Jesus didn't merely proclaim the gospel as he declared the kingdom of God is at hand. He embodied the gospel. He is the gospel. Not only his message, but his whole life gave glory to God the Father as the all gracious, all generous, all giving, perfect Father. And what makes the gospel then good news for us, as I've already been saying, what makes the objective truth of the gospel that we know in our heads to be the personal truth of the gospel that we know in our hearts is that in Christ, we too are sons and daughters of God, that we cry out in the power of the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father. The uh, Westminster Catechism begins with the words, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. See how that saying that glory and joy go hand in hand. We can't have one without the other. We glorify God by enjoying him. Or in light of Galatians 4, the Father is most glorified in us when we find all of our joy in him and we call him Abba. If you've got a gospel that doesn't take you to that place, then it's not a gospel. It's not a gospel that gives glory to the Father. But we also need to see that if we have a gospel that claims to take us to that place but it doesn't bring us there through Christ crucified, then it's also not a gospel. It might feel like it's given us intimacy with God. It might give us experiences or feelings that seem to confirm to us that we're there, but without the crucified and risen Christ as the only way in which we come to the Father, we're actually fooling ourselves that we know him. A lot of popular modern worship songs speak in very high terms of God. They're often directed directly to God and they speak of a deep intimacy with him. And in itself that's very good. However, many of them don't even mention Jesus. And many of them that do say very little, if anything at all, about his atoning death. These songs, they try to bring us directly to the Father without a mediator, without recognising that the Father's designated and only way of coming to Him is through Jesus, our great high priest, who atoned for us by, who don't for us sin by His blood, who for all eternity will be worshipped as the Lamb who was slain. So we better get used to it and start singing about the Lamb who was slain. Today. For that reason, a lot of of those more modern songs are written in a very repetitive way. They say very few words over and over again, and they use a musical style that, together with the repetition, can kind of lull us into almost a trance like state where we mistake then this uh, emotional experience. As the presence of God. If that's the way that we do worship, then what we've actually done is we've turned worship or we've turned music and singing into something we do that brings us to the Father. So worship becomes a work along with our work of faith or our work of prayer or our work of piety or devotion. It's replaced grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, while externally our experience today looks quite different to what it would have looked like in Galatia, it was actually the same thing that the Galatian Christians were doing. See verses 8 to 10. Now, the Galatian Christians were Gentiles. They'd come to faith in Christ out of their pagan religions, which involved the worship of idols, those that by nature are not gods. These idols had enslaved them. They bound them to their sin through their empty rituals of worship, through their demands to do things, to earn their favour. These idols promised freedom, but they only delivered bondage. But then in Christ, through Christ, the the Galatians had come to know the true and living God. But not just that, they came to be known by God. See there in verse 9. It's one thing to know God. It's another thing to know that God knows you. On its own, to say we've come to know God might imply that we've moved towards him. But to say that we've come to be known by God means he's brought us to himself, not by our doing, but by his. So this is the glorious freedom that they had come to in Christ. And this freedom was being threatened, not by turning back to their pagan idols, but by allowing another form of worship to be imposed on them. And Paul identifies it here as observing days and months and seasons and years. These were the stipulations set out by the law in the Old Testament that required the Jews to observe all of their various festivals, their commemorative days and years, the whole system of worship that was part of their law-keeping. But see how they're described, weak and worthless principles of the world. And see how it says that they're turning back again to them. Even though before they were Christians, they didn't observe the Jewish law, Paul can say that if they take these laws on now, they're no better off than they were when they were idol worshippers. Now we need to be clear here, Paul's not saying that the law itself is bad. We've already seen that the law was given for a purpose, so it wasn't a mistake, it wasn't a contingency plan that had to be put in place because God didn't see sin coming. It's saying that the law is weak and worthless in the sense that it cannot and was never intended to accomplish what they're thinking it will righteousness before God. The word worthless is probably not the best translation. It's a word that literally means crouched down, and it describes the posture of a beggar on the street someone who's destitute, who's taking but has nothing. To give. So the law is weak and beggarly on two accounts. First, as I said, it, it cannot give us that righteousness before God. But secondly, because Christ has come, it's done its job and it's now been made obsolete. So the days, the months, the seasons, and the years in the law, they were all put there and designed to point people forward to the day when the symbolism of those observances would be fulfilled in the reality of Jesus. They were the shadow, he is the substance. So when the real thing comes, it's foolish. In fact, it's an insult to the reality to keep on living in the shadow. As Montaz said two weeks ago, it's like continuing to live in the scaffolding when the building is complete. So, a question is, from that, is it wrong to observe special days and seasons? Well, that's also not what it's saying. Paul says in another letter, the letter to the Romans, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Some prefer to observe special days, and some prefer not to. But what neither of these people should do is to claim that their practice of observing or abstaining is something that God demands of them for their righteousness. Nor should they insist that others observe or abstain just as they do. Both need to recognise that these observances, these days and other practices, they don't have the power to give them life or to bring them to God the Father. Christ alone does that. You're no doubt aware that we didn't have a Good Friday service this year. For some of you, that meant staying home and relaxing. For others, it meant going to another church for their Good Friday service. For others, it meant coming here and prayerfully walking through the Easter uncovered display. Maybe some of you were disappointed. Maybe you were even grumpy that we didn't have a Good Friday service like we have had for decades in the past. But because Scripture neither commands nor prohibits that we observe Good Friday, that we celebrate a special day or season called Easter, we have the freedom to do what we believe is honouring to the Lord without demanding that others do it, or do the same thing as us. Because our righteousness doesn't depend on it. Our sonship doesn't depend on it. Our being filled with the Spirit doesn't depend on it. Christ crucified alone is what brings those things, those realities about. I want to say too, beware of Christian self-help books. These are the books that tell you that if you follow the author's particular techniques, you'll achieve some kind of spiritual success. Or maybe it's a book that tells you of some secret principle that they've, that's they've that been hidden in the Bible for centuries that only they now have recently discovered. And if you put that into practice, somehow you will draw closer to God. These books may not say explicitly that you can achieve righteousness before God through the law. Their emphasis on what you do rather than what Christ has done will train you to be thinking in terms of works instead of in terms of grace. They may not be the Ten Commandments, but they're really just another law another form of worship that has been imposed on you that promises freedom but will only give slavery. So I hope we can see why in verses 11 to 20, Paul is so worked up about what's happening in Galatia. It wasn't that they just had a slightly different emphasis in their theology that was different to Paul but not worth arguing over. By adding the law back in, they were denying the gospel itself, which means they were deserting Christ himself. They probably had orthodox beliefs in other, in other areas. They may have been spot on with doctrines that we would consider to be central to the Christian faith, but by replacing grace with law, they were nullifying all of that. So Paul reminds them of how they originally received the gospel when he came to them in weakness because of a bodily ailment in verse 13. What that ailment was, we can't be sure. Maybe verse 15 gives us a clue. You would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Maybe it was an eye condition that affected his, his sight. That might, might be why he says in at the end of the letter... See with what large letters I'm writing in my own hand. And if so, that could have been the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about in Second Corinthians that was given to him by God. He says, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now, whatever the ailment was, we can't say for sure. The point is that he came to them not as a great, powerful preacher with a message of health and wealth and success to those who have enough faith or to those who jump through all the right hoops instead he preached to them in the midst of sickness and weakness and he gave them a gospel of a humble crucified savior a man of sorrows acquainted with grief who went to a shameful cross to redeem sinners That gospel is the gospel that has power to save. And that power was seen by the Galatians because Paul was simply the messenger and his own weakness was a testimony to the all-sufficient grace of Jesus. But by contrast, the motives of these legalists is exposed, the circumcision group. He says, they make much of you. In other words, they build you up by saying that you have in yourself the capacity to earn your own righteousness. They make you feel flattered by calling you to become as they are, as respectable, as self-righteous, as approved in God's eyes by their obedience. Just do what I do the way that I do it, they say, and you can be as respected and honoured and as spiritual as I am. But Paul says, why? why are they doing this? Not for your benefit, but for their own. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Meaning they want to shut you out of grace. They want to shut you out from the rest of the church that is uh, in the freedom of God's grace. This is the same thing that we saw in Corinth, which today we would call spiritual abuse. See, the spiritual abuser, in order to get people under their control, begins by giving them a great hope that they can become spiritually successful by following their rules or techniques or laws which they claim have made them spiritually successful. But they set the bar so high with impossible goals and so the people will always be beholden to them always dependent upon their approval always striving but never quite reaching that goal so this false gospel may have been saying you can glorify God by keeping his law but their motives were glorify us by keeping our legalistic message. Now, Paul did say, if you remember, become, uh, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. But he's reminded them of how they knew him. Weak, sick, fully dependent, not on himself, but on Christ. And he says it's always good to be made much of, for a good purpose, which we see in verse 19. He wants to see Christ formed in them, not Paul formed in them. Now, in other places, Paul talks about himself as a father to those he preached Christ to, but here, Paul's their mother. He feels the pain of their foolishness in turning to self righteousness and that pain is like the great pain of a a woman in labor. See he's saying these hard words to them not because he wants to be recognized as a great apostle like these legalists do it's because he loves them because he wants them to know their freedom in Christ. So his words might bring pain to his readers they may be bringing pain to us But it's a pain that he feels and experiences himself. And in that way, he's again truly reflecting Christ who suffered for us and with us. Now, verses 8 to 20 have in a way been a short interlude. Uh, Paul does that a bit. He's speaking and then something triggers off a thought and he goes a little bit off track uh, in a good way under the Spirit's leading. But now we come back to where he was earlier in the chapter with this story of Abraham and Sarah. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Okay, he says, if you say you need to be under the law, let's see what the law actually says. Now remember, the law, that phrase, or the Torah, didn't just mean the list of rules given at Mount Sinai. When a Jew said the law, the Torah, they meant all of the first five books of the Old Testament and all of the stories in those books, including the story of Abraham, Sarah and Hagar. Now, we heard the story of Hagar earlier, Abraham and Sarah, they'd heard the promises of God, but they thought we need to make the promises come about by our own efforts So because Sarah was unable to have children she gave Hagar to Abraham and Hagar became pregnant with Ishmael. Hagar looked with contempt on Sarah. Sarah drove her away but when when Hagar was in the wilderness the Lord met her and sent her back. Then 14 years later Isaac was born. But the teenage boy, the 14-year-old Ishmael, he showed the same contempt towards Isaac as Hagar had shown to Sarah many years ago. So Hagar and Ishmael were sent away. And this time the Lord approved this separation because he said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now we can read that story, we can take from it all kinds of lessons about how God relates to people, uh, how he cared for Hagar, how he was teaching Abraham and Sarah about having faith in his promises, but we're told here in Galatians that the main purpose of those things happening in that way and for them being written down and included in the scriptures was to point to the gospel. These two sons, one born by a slave woman and one born by a free woman, are a picture of the contrast between the false gospel of works, that's no gospel at all, and the true gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. See how this contrast is traced all the way through the the passage from verse 22. Hagar represents the law given in the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai. And verse 25 makes the point that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And that highlights the fact that Mount Sinai wasn't within the Promised Land. It was only the place where the Israelites stopped for a while on their journey to the Promised Land. But it was also the region that Hagar went to when she fled from Sarah the first time. And then Arabia became the region that Ishmael settled and when he grew up, he became the father of the Arabic people. But then Paul makes this shocking connection between Mount Sinai and Jerusalem. In ancient city, ancient world, cities were always built on the tops of mountains. So Mount Sinai and Jerusalem was often called Zion because it was built on Mount Zion. But cities were also thought of as feminine. A city was a mother to its inhabitants. Their walls, all the cities were always walled, their walls were like the wings of a mother hen who keeps her chicks secure. That explains Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Jerusalem had failed, was a failed mother in gathering her children, and so Jesus was saying... On, on the new Jerusalem, on the replacement to that. So we've shifted from the image of a mountain to a city. So the contrast now is between the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. Because the Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, because they had chosen instead to remain under the law, they remained slaves. In their rejection of the Messiah, they'd effectively, they'd given up their descent from Isaac to become like descendants of Ishmael. So they remained as children in this earthly city of Jerusalem as slaves. The city that a little over 20 years after this letter was written was destroyed along with its temple and all of that worship. But in Christ, the bridegroom, we are children of another mother, another city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the church. Cyprian of Carthage, who lived in the third century, said, No one can have God for his father who does not have the church. For his mother. The new covenant symbolised by Sarah is the covenant that Jesus made with his bride, with the church. And all who are members of Christ's church through faith in him are children of the free woman. Jesus told another parable about two sons, it's in Luke 15. We normally talk about it as if it's the parable of one son, the prodigal son. But Jesus begins it by saying there was a man who had two sons. And probably by using that terminology, his Jewish listeners who knew their Bible might have been expecting the story to be about Abraham and his two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Or maybe Jacob and his two sons... Sorry, Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the parable does echo deliberately those two stories, but with a twist. Often when the parable's told, it finishes at the point that the father welcomes back the wayward son. And often we stop at that point. But remember what happens in the second half of the story. The older son was out working in the field, And he comes in and he's angry that his youngest son had been welcomed back and that there was a party being held in his honour. He said to his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fatted calf for him. See how the son, the older son, thinks that his status in the family was based on his works. I've served, literally I have slaved for you many years. His obedient service he thought meant he deserved something better than his disobedient brother. But see what the father says in response. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See, both sons were only in the family by grace. Neither of them had earned their way in or kept themselves in. Now the younger son, he knew this starkly because he knew the emptiness of being outside, having dishonoured his father and squandered his inheritance. But now he knew the wonder of being welcomed back in, not by his works, but by grace. When the father put the ring on his finger... It was restoring his inheritance. He'd become a son and an heir again. He knew the freedom of grace. But the older son, he stood in self-imposed exile outside in the darkness. And as long as he saw that his status as a son was something that he had slaved for with his perfect obedience then he'd never be able to enjoy the the goodness of the feast or to join in the dancing or to know the the true freedom of his father's love. So which son are you? Are you the older son living in the exclusion of self-imposed slavery of your own works? Or are you the younger son living in the freedom of undeserved grace as